From KHOL, this is Jackson Unpacked. Our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm news director, Tyler Pratt. Coming up on today's show, it's been a wet spring and early summer in Jackson Hole, but the region is still in wildfire season. Efforts are being made to educate residents about how they can help protect their homes. Are there lessons that can be learned from devastating wildfires in California? There is a way to adapt, and actually everyday citizens can do something, and there's a way to live better with fire. And later, farm and ranch lands across the West are facing many threats. Now the federal government is pushing to preserve more agricultural open space. One of the best tools for conserving grasslands is keeping ranchers ranching. More on what that looks like on the ground from a ranch in western Wyoming. These stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. Thanks so much for joining us today. Jackson officials have begun regularly acknowledging that the town sits on the homeland of Native Americans. Council members say it's a first step towards building relationships with indigenous communities. Hannah Mersbach has more. Before the town of Jackson was established in the late 1800s, many Native American tribes depended on the land. In the years that followed, legal battles over land rights, injustice, racism, and acts of cultural appropriation ensued. Now at the town council's regular meetings, officials will recognize this history and read a proclamation after the Pledge of Allegiance. Here's Mayor Haley Morton-Levinson. We recognize that the land we are gathering on is the ancestral homeland of the Mountain Shoshone people who stewarded it for thousands of years and that many other tribes also lived upon and cared for this area, including the Bannock, Blackfoot, Crow, Eastern Shoshone, Grovant, Nez Pierce, Northern Arapaho tribes, and others. With gratitude, we honor Indigenous peoples, past and present. The move came at the urging of the town's Equity Task Force, which drafted the statement with the help of Native-focused groups. Council members say they also plan to hold workshops with tribal members, visit the Wind River Reservation, and reconsider the town land statement on a regular basis. Hannah Mersbach, KHOL News. Local Native American and tribal advocates that KHOL spoke with for this story said Jackson may be one of the only towns in Wyoming to read a land acknowledgement like this. But in different areas across the U.S., these types of statements are much more common. What do indigenous leaders and history keepers think about these land acknowledgments? Wyoming Public Radio recently decided to ask. Their podcast, The Modern West, is currently releasing the series Mending the Hoop, which takes a look at the history of the Plains Indian Wars from the perspective of tribes. Host and producer Melody Edwards assembled this collection of indigenous voices. Land acknowledgments are complicated. You know, I think the value of land acknowledgements is the fact that they're just saying like, hey, you know what, this don't belong to us, <laughs> you know? And I think that's a very powerful thing. I think it's powerful because I think it says, we understand the true history of this land. We understand that we are foreigners or immigrants to some sort. And I think that a land acknowledgement as an essence of, of honor. And I think that the more we're able to do that moving forward, the more people are gonna tear down the, that, those false images of who we are. And maybe 
maybe something will hit here in their heart to say, I want to learn more. Land acknowledgements are great. When you can acknowledge that the land used to belong to so many other ancestral tribes, it does show that people went beyond to look into that research. But that shouldn't be the stopping point. It should be the fact that we should all be doing something to accept and acknowledge indigenous people back onto the, to the land that they once belonged to. A statement about acknowledging the Native Americans is great if it's sincere and if it's historically accurate. I really think of it as just a first step. Like it is not just something we should do to assuage guilt. <laughs> Especially too with universities, you know, when you hear a land acknowledgement, I'm like, that's great. And I'm like, but what are you doing for those tribes and those students that come from there? You know, for here in Wyoming, I would love for the Rappel and the Shoshones and also the Crows and other people, the Utes, other people who have ties to this land to be able to be like, hey, you know what? You get free tuition. You know, that would be a powerful step. And you see that what's happening with Colorado, you know, where they're doing in-state tuition for all those tribes who identify in those areas, that's powerful. Like folks will open a meeting, you know, at a colonial institution with a land acknowledgement, but do nothing to support the Native or Indigenous students. And that does not, that does not correspond. There was this whole time of a rising land acknowledgement movement where it seemed like everybody and every entity and every organization was like, we need to have a land acknowledgement. And in many cases, as crazy as it sounds, for me anyway, it's crazy, is that they would ask Native people to do these land acknowledgements. And they would reach out and say, hey, I have this event. Would you be able to, do you know somebody or would you be able to come and do a land acknowledgement? And to me, that was like such a light bulb moment that these organizations and people don't even realize what a land acknowledgement means or what it signifies or symbolizes. A Native person should not be doing that and should never be asked to do that because we already acknowledge the land. We already know where we come from. We already, you know, we know. So it's really people that are not Native to acknowledge that these are lands that they work, play, and live are lands that were stolen and um, in some cases Natives were forcefully removed. There should also be an implied recognition that the land that you're on legally shouldn't be yours, okay? Almost universally, most of the treaties that were signed were broken by the United States. And so, you know, to sit there and say, oh, thanks for letting us steal all your land. It's sometimes it can, it's disingenuous for one thing, but then it's just uh, condescending and kind of that act of colonization and hegemony where we're saying, oh, you know, we still control you. We still dominate you. So therefore, you know, we have the freedom to say, gosh, thanks for what you've given us. Uh, we're not giving it back. <laughs> I'm of the opinion that we live in a capitalist society and the best way to show support to something is to put your money where your mouth is. Um, so I will frequently tell people to uh, donate to Native organizations, um, even if it's just a little bit, you know, if, if you're doing a land acknowledgement in front of 200 people and then everybody puts two bucks towards an, uh, an organization, that can turn into a sizable amount of money um, pretty fast. And so, um, yeah, I, I, they're nice. I think it's time to put something else behind it besides the words.
So land acknowledgements are great, but there's so much more work that has to go beyond that to start showing and inviting people back into public lands, federal tribal lands, and say, you know what, this is yours. We still need your input to take care of it. Um, we can't just do it ourselves, and we don't have the funding or <laughs> the man to, you know, put boots on the ground to maintain it. Um, I think incorporating tribes back into their ancestral land is that actual movement to acknowledge they were a part of the land. You're tuned to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked. I'm Tyler Pratt. In 2018, the Woolsey Fire in Southern California tore through the coast and became one of the most destructive fires in Los Angeles County history. Thousands of structures were destroyed and three people died. Wildfires have become commonplace in California and in the United States in recent years. Here in Teton County, we're no stranger to the threat of wildfires. The Forest Service states the region is one of the most at risk for wildfires in Wyoming. The season typically runs roughly June through September. Efforts are currently underway to help educate homeowners about their risks and create a Teton County wildfire mitigation plan. In the Woolsey Fire in California, a group of surfers stepped up to fight the fire in Malibu when first responders weren't able to come through during one of the worst wildfire seasons in the state's history. Adriana Cargill is a radio producer who is telling the story of how the group, dubbed the Point Doom Bombers, helped fight the fire in her podcast, Sandcastles, and has found they may have crafted a model of community resilience that other places may be able to learn from. Hi, Adriana. Hello. So what drew you to this story? The Woolsey Fire happened back in 2018, and I was working in a local public radio station in Los Angeles, and we've got the TVs kind of blaring in the newsroom, and I just looked up just kind of randomly, and I saw this scene where surfers on longboards had generators, like 50 or 60 pound generators that they were balancing on their surfboards and then surfing them into the beach. And then there was a line of people who would help carry them and put it on a truck and it went somewhere. And I could see there was no emergency personnel there. And I was just like mystified. I was like, what is going on here? Like, why aren't these people just, you know, driving the supplies in? Like, why, where do they not have power? What's going on? And I, I just like, couldn't get that scene out of my head. And so I just decided I had to find out. And so I started interviewing people in Malibu and quickly found this group called the Point Doom Bombers. And over the course of four years, I followed them from that day where they had this spontaneous response to where they are right now, which is, you know, creating a new model for communities to live better with fire. Wow. Four years of reporting. And yeah, that is a, a crazy seem to have witnessed. So what were some of the biggest takeaways from reporting on this these past several years? One of the reasons why I was struck by this story is before I saw that moment, I think personally, I was kind of caught in a doom loop about wildfires. You know, like all the coverage I was seeing was just so depressing. <laughs> it's just like all these communities destroyed, all these homes lost, all these people died, climate change is getting worse, drought, mismanaged forest lands, like nothing's getting better. It's really depressing. And what I saw in this story was that 
actually, there is a way to adapt. And actually, everyday citizens can do something. And there's a way to live better with fire. And I think that's probably my biggest takeaway. And I also learned so much about just preparing for fires, what to do during them, immediately after. I think the community has a lot more resources than they realize. And when I say that, this model really just uses people. It's just about getting people together, getting them organized, educated, and giving them some tools. And I can see that there's a lot that can be done with that. And one thing I would highlight is like, for me, I'm from the Midwest, so wildfires are totally foreign to me. And I learned this in the course of reporting that actually around 90% of homes burn from ember fires. So not from the huge fire front that comes through, which in my mind, it was like, okay, huge fire flames burn everything. And it's actually these embers that come before or after. That I learned interviewing uh, Jack Cohen, who's a former US Forest Service fire scientist who's literally spent decades trying to figure out how homes ignite. We're actually dealing with a lot of this here in Teton County as we're at risk for wildfires and we're surrounded by forest. People are going around and talking to homeowners about fire might be far away, but an ember comes across and burn your house down. So what are some of the lessons that homeowners can take away from your experience reporting? What did you learn? One thing that was super surprising to me. So one of the guys I feature in the podcast, his name's Keegan Gibbs and his family home burned down in the Woolsey fire. He actually saw it burning on the news. And when he got back to the house, you know, the house was gone, but actually his dad is a composer and he records music in a studio in the backyard. And the studio was completely untouched. And, you know, Keegan was sort of dumbfounded. He's like, how is this possible? He felt like this must be a miracle. But then he started learning about basic fire science and really what had happened because it was a recording studio, it was airtight, meaning it was also ember proof. And these two buildings were right next to each other. Same fire, same place, two completely different outcomes. And the studio's name is actually called the Woodshed because it's made of cedar shingles. So the entire thing is wood. We actually have a clip of this. Let's go ahead and play this. You see every time there's a fire, you see on Channel 7 or something, we're standing at at the Gibbs studio, and it's a miracle. It continues to perpetuate this idea that there's nothing we can do that's gonna prevent our homes from burning down. So there's nothing you can do about it. It's up to God or the firefighters, you know? And it's not true, it's just not true. So what does he mean by it's not true? So if his family had done the same home hardening that they did basically by accident to the studio, it's very likely their actual home wouldn't have burned down. And so what that could look like is double pane windows. They also had, because it was a recording studio, they wanted to have no vegetation near the house. And so it's just stone around it. And then they used, um, his mom kind of built this regenerative garden, which was like damp, mossy plants. And then they also had screens to close off the chimneys and any other air vents. And that made the difference between losing the structure and not losing it. 
You know, fire experts have said the days have long gone of fire teams sweeping in to save houses. Fires are just so destructive and resources are limited. So much of the onus is now on homeowners to prepare their properties for the risk of wildfire. Do you think that people are listening and taking precautions? I think the Woolsey fire was a big wake up call, especially for the people in Malibu and where I was reporting in my story. So and I just want to say for, for listeners, a lot of people have this idea that Malibu is just all beaches and it's like millionaires with their homes on the beach. And that does exist, but that is a tiny fraction. Malibu is mostly made up of steep canyons and the Santa Monica mountain range. So it's actually quite rural and there's it's a population of about 11,000 people. And I think there was this expectation, which was really repeated to me by many people I interviewed, that they thought that the fire department was going to handle the Woolsey fire. Malibu is so small that it doesn't have its own fire force. And so it contracts from L.A. County. And L.A. County is the second largest fire department in the nation. It's got over a billion dollar budget, 228 engines. It's massive. And L.A. County is about 4,700 square miles. And, you know, it's about 10 million people. So it's this is a massive fire department. And even they, with one of the biggest, most resourced fire departments in the country, couldn't even get close to responding to Woolsey. I mean, when you have a fire that's moving 60 miles an hour, it's going from ridgetop to ridgetop. You know, it's not even like burning like a traditional fire. There's no one can keep up with that. And I think people realize that one of the biggest ways that they can save their homes is by making it ember proof or fireproof. What the Point Doom Bombers and others in Malibu created is called the Community Brigade Pilot Program. And what they're really trying to do at the base of that is shift culture around how we live with wildfires. And instead of the community totally relying on the fire department, the community becomes an active partner. And part of that is preparation, but part of that is also during a fire and and also after a fire. Organizers think that that could really move the needle. And I think people in L.A. County are ready to try something new, frankly. In your reporting, what have you found with people that that may not have the the, the funds or the money to do something like this? Are there, are there are there smaller steps that people can take? In the community brigade model, one of the big things they'll be doing is they are going to get trained in how to harden homes or make suggestions for hardening homes, and they will go around at an homeowner's request and actually give you a list of recommendations for the house and for folks who can't afford it, which. You know, almost everybody I focus on in the podcast is working class Malibu that has roots to its ranch and more sort of rural past. So these folks, the brigade members will actually refer them to financial assistance. And there's a bunch of different grants through Cal Fire and other places where there's actually money allotted to to incentivize homeowners to make these changes because the fire department wants this. You know, the city government wants this. They do not want people to lose their homes and come screaming at them. So this is, you know, home hardening is a win-win for all parties. And and I think there are economic resources to help folks who can't afford it. Well, since the Woolsey fire took place, and now you talk about community resilience, what does the community look like now, all these years later? I'm sad to report that of the homes lost in Malibu during the Woolsey fire, which was five years ago, only one in four have been rebuilt. 
And I think the population's actually gone down by about 2,000. So you actually do see a lot of folks who, you know, haven't been able to rebuild, who can't come back. And for Keegan Gibbs, who we talked about earlier, his family home still hasn't been rebuilt. And, you know, they have spent years fighting with insurance, which I think, unfortunately, is probably not a unique experience. Climate change appears to have changed our relationship with wildfires across North America. As we look to the future, what will communities need to grapple with in the years to come? I think that's a really important question. And I want to back up and say Sandcastles is a podcast about home, how we create it, and why we fight so hard for it. So from my reporting, I really approach this looking at this group of people's relationship to their home and, and why they're willing to risk their lives for it. And from my reporting, I think it's really unrealistic to think that people are just going to leave, you know, especially when, you know, your home is the place where you feel you belong. It's where your family lives. It's where your friends, your community. And here in the United States, it's also our equity, right? So I think it's really, really unrealistic to think people are just going to pick up and move. At the same time, you know, wildfires are not going away. And they're becoming more intense, more frequent, more unpredictable. So I think the question becomes, how do we live better with wildfire? And I think people across the West, across the globe, are going to have to answer specifically, do I stay and fight? Do I evacuate? And one of the biggest takeaways in this podcast was that the folks that invented this brigade model the whole point of it is to try and, through training and education, allow people to make a more informed decision when they have to decide stay or go instead of just leaving in a panic. And and to me, that really resonated. That was Adriana Cargill, producer of the Sandcastles podcast, about how a group of surfers helped fight one of the most destructive California wildfires in recent years. She was discussing lessons Teton County may be able to take away from her four years of reporting. You can find Sandcastles on podcast platforms like Apple or Spotify. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we go today, farm and ranch lands across the West face many threats, like inflation and outside development. But the federal government is working with agricultural producers to preserve open space and the benefits it provides. The Mountain West News Bureau's Will Walkie reports. Andy James is riding a horse on her ranch in Daniel, Wyoming, population 106. A herd is grazing the high alpine hillsides which look especially green due to a wet winter in the region. These heifers are out grazing for the summer here in this pasture. This plot is part of a U.S. Department of Agriculture program that pays farmers and ranchers to conserve their lands. Later at the family's dining room table, James lays out maps showing the parcels that are in the program. This is Horse Creek out there along that hill there. So we have yearlings out here pastured for the summer. James teaches the second grade at a school nearby and bought the ranch in 2021 from her father. Her family began working in the area in the 50s, and it can be a tough place. The growing season lasts just around 45 days, and the average January temperature is 12 degrees. 
our fun looks like work to people, but we would rather go <laughs> rope calves and ride horses even for fun on days off. That's what, still what we choose to do. But keeping a ranch has its challenges. Hay prices reached record highs last year. The U.S. lost some 2 million acres of farm and ranch lands in 2022, with a quarter of that just in Wyoming. Bill Bunce with the state's Farm Service Agency says it can be tempting for families to sell out. If we don't do something now to increase that habitat and make that economically viable where people just don't have to sell off the places, then, you know, in another hundred years, it just won't be there at all. Uh, It'll be another parking lot. Bunt says open space is critical for air quality and food production. That's why the USDA is renewing its push for voluntary conservation programs. Undersecretary Robert Bonney said at a recent meeting of Western governors that it's also important for wildlife. He noted that people generally see animals like moose and elk in the summer at popular parks like Yellowstone. They don't recognize that, yeah, they're there in the summertime, but in the wintertime they're often on private working lands. The USDA has several conservation programs, which includes grasslands. But for years, the number of farms involved in total was on the decline. Between 2006 and 2021, enrolled acreage dropped by more than 40 percent, or about 15 million acres. So the USDA added incentives for people to join, like raising rental rates for grassland leases and offering more when farmers can enhance their water and soil quality. They're also trying to attract more people from disadvantaged groups, like newer ranchers or veterans. And they're prioritizing parts of the West that they say really need to be preserved. That includes the greater Yellowstone ecosystem or former Dust Bowl areas of eastern Colorado and New Mexico. Economic viability is critical. One of the best tools for conserving grasslands is keeping ranchers ranching. Last year, total enrollment in conservation reserve programs went up for the first time in 15 years. In the Mountain West, it grew by almost 800,000 acres. On the ground, joining this program doesn't mean many changes for Andy James. She has to meet certain requirements, like only growing hay for part of the year, but most operations remain unchanged, and that's preserving open space for wildlife. Moose still hang out in the riverbeds, pronghorn are still up on the ridges. And they live right along with whatever's grazing up there when we're up there um, in the summertime with cattle. Um, Just saw some babies the other day, actually. The difference is these payments provide about $35,000 of extra income. She says with this money, she could build better fencing and wells, pay off a loan, or hire some extra help. We want to continue doing what we do. This is our livelihood. And we're more looking for programs that help supplement what we love to do so that we can keep our land working and operating as a ranch. She says by funding conservation programs, the USDA is recognizing the value agriculture provides. Still, advocates say further reforms, and in some cases more funding, are needed to enroll more landowners. For Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Will Walkie in Sublette County. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Tyler Pratt, and this is KHOL, Jackson Hole Community Radio. Mm-hmm.